bonjour, my fellow humans, and welcome back to ASM Murder, the only true crime podcast with an ASMR twist. Today's episode is number seven, and we're going to talk about a rather gruesome crime from a little city in Iowa. It happened over a hundred years ago in 1912. If you aren't up on your axe murders, that's okay, because this week we are going to be discussing the town of Villisca and the horror that happened that night. That's right, we're taking a trip back in time to discuss the Villisca axe murders. So come back with me, fellow humans, to June 10th, 1912. Eight people died that day, and there have been multiple suspects across the years. One was even tried twice, but the crime has not been resolved to this day. Content warning. Today's episode contains graphic content not suitable for some audiences, which include mentions about the death of children and adults, mentions about sexual assault, descriptions of a crime scene, and the state of dead bodies. Listener discretion is therefore advised. The Moore family consisted of six people. The parents, who were called Sarah Nee Montgomery, 39 years old, and Josiah B., 43, and four children, Herman Montgomery, 11, Mary Catherine, 10, Arthur Boyd, 7, and Paul Vernon, 5. They were a wealthy family, and the community they lived in liked them. But as mentioned earlier, the victims were eight, not six. That's because there were two guests at the time of the murder, and unfortunately, they were killed too. Mary Catherine invited two of her friends to spend the night at her family's residence on June 9th, the day before the crime happened. The guests were Lena Gertrude Stillinger, 12, and Ina May, 8, who were both sisters. That evening, the Moors and their guests attended the Presbyterian Church in which they participated in the Children's Day program, which was coordinated by Sarah. The program ended at 9.30 p.m., and the eight people arrived at the Moore residence between 9.45 and 10 p.m. The crime wasn't discovered until 7 a.m. of the following day, thanks to Mary Peckham, a neighbor of the family. She was concerned about them, as the Moors always worked on their morning chores very early in the day, and... They hadn't even appeared outside yet. The woman knocked on their door, but no one answered. Then, Mary tried to open it, and found it was locked. She let the Moore's chickens out and called Ross Moore, who was Josiah's brother. But he didn't have luck either, even after shouting. Ross then opened the door with his own copy of the key and decided to investigate while Peckham stood on the porch. Ross opened the guest bedroom's door, and that was where he found Ina and Lena Stillinger's bodies on the bed. The bedclothes were filled with dark stains. Seeing this, Moore told Peckham that she had to call Henry Hank Horton, who was Villisca's city marshal, who then arrived quickly to the residence. He was the one who found the remaining victims in the upstairs bedrooms. Horton's investigation revealed that the family and their guests had been beaten to death with a heavy object, their skulls crushed. The murder weapon was an axe that belonged to Josiah and it was found in the guest room that the Stillinger sisters had occupied the night before. It was covered with blood, which the murderer had attempted to wipe off. After the autopsy, the doctors concluded that the murders had taken place between midnight and 5 a.m. There were two cigarettes in the attic, suggesting that the culprit or culprits had waited patiently until their victims were deeply asleep. Everything began in the master bedroom where Josiah and Sarah were sleeping. Josiah seemed to be the main objective of the crime, as he had received more blows from the axe than anyone else, thirty in total. 
His face had been cut to such an extent that his eyes were missing, and the killer or killers used the blade of the weapon only with him, while the other victims were killed by the blunt end of the axe. Another detail is that the ceilings in the parents' and children's rooms also had gouge marks from when the murderer lifted the axe to commit the crime. The four more children were bludgeoned in the head, just like it happened with their parents, and the culprit and culprits ended up returning to the master bedroom to keep injuring Josiah and Sarah's bodies. They knocked over a shoe filled with blood before going to the guest room and killing Ina and Lena. Seemingly afterwards, a four-pound slab of bacon was taken out of the icebox and laid next to the weapon. Investigators also found untouched food in a bowl filled with bloody water during the search, which made authorities believe that the culprit or culprits had cleaned their hands with it. Authorities believe that all victims were asleep when they were killed, except Lena. She was found lying across the bed with a defensive wound on her arm. The girl's nightgown was pushed up to her waist, and she was wearing no underwear, which made authorities believe that she was sexually molested or that the culprit had attempted to do so. All of the victims' faces were covered with bedclothes after they were killed, and a piece of keychain was found on the floor in the downstairs bedroom, but it's not clear if it was property of the Moore family or not. The house keys had been used to lock the doors, and they were taken by the perpetrator. Another interesting fact is that all the mirrors were covered and there were kerosene lamps found at the foot of the bed of Josiah and Sarah and the Stillinger girls while the chimneys were all turned off. There was no trace of the murderer or murderers as they had a head start of many hours and the town had nearly 30 trains called every day. It wouldn't have been hard to escape. Many suspects appeared with the passing of time which include Reverend George Kelly, Frank F. Jones, William Mansfield, Loving Mitchell, Paul Mueller, and Henry Lee Moore, who was not related to the victims. Kelly was tried twice for the murder, but he was found not guilty, just like it happened with the other suspects. Many of the leads were dismissed with time, and different people believed that different suspects were the real culprits. First, we have to make something clear. Every stranger that interacted with the family, no matter for how little time, was considered a suspect. Andrew Sawyer was one of those people, but he wasn't charged with anything, yet his name was mentioned multiple times in grand jury testimonies. According to Thomas Dyer of Burlington, Iowa, a bridge foreman and pile driver for the Burlington Railroad, Sawyer approached the crew in Creston at 6 a.m. on the morning in which the crime was discovered. He was shaven and was wearing a brown suit, while his shoes were covered in mud and his pants were wet nearly to the knees. He asked for a job, and as Dyer needed an extra hand, Sawyer was quickly given a job. Dyer says that later that day, his new worker bought a newspaper that talked about the Velisca murders. He was very interested in that report. Sawyer was scared to be on his own and didn't even remove his clothes to sleep. The rest of the crew was anxious around him because he never left his axe and kept wondering about the crime that he had read about in the newspaper. Apparently, Sawyer admitted that he had been in Villisca that Sunday night and was afraid about being a suspect, which was why he had left the place. Dyer was wary about that confession, and so he turned the man over to the sheriff on June 18, 1912. Before the authorities arrived, Dyer testified that he had walked up behind Sawyer, who was rubbing his head with both hands. He suddenly jumped up and said, I will cut your goddamn heads off, while making striking motions with his axe, hitting the piles in front of him. 
J.R. Dyer said that one day, as the crew drove through Villisca, Sawyer told him that he would show him where the man that killed the Moore family got out of town. He explained that the culprit jumped over a manure box, which he pointed out about one and a half blocks away, and then showed him where he crossed the railroad track. There were footprints in the soggy ground north of the embankment. However, Sawyer was apparently dismissed as a suspect because his alibi showed that he had been in Osceola, Iowa, when the murders happened. He had been arrested for vagrancy, and the Osceola sheriff recalled putting him on a train at approximately 11 p.m. that evening. Now let's talk about Reverend George Kelly, the person who was tried twice yet wasn't found guilty. Now why was he one of the main suspects just to be acquitted in the end? Kelly was a traveling minister who was in Villisca on the night of the crimes. He was a rather peculiar man who had suffered a mental breakdown in his teenage years. When he became an adult, he was accused of peeping and asked multiple young girls and women to pose naked for him. On June 8, 1912, he had arrived to the town to teach the children's day services which all of the victims had been in the following day. People saw that Kelly had left the town between 5 a.m. and 5.50 a.m. on June 10, 1912, about two hours before the bodies were found. He even confessed to the crime in court, but the jury didn't believe him. After that, the Reverend showed an intense fascination about the case. He wrote multiple letters to investigators, the police, and the family of the victims. This was suspicious, and so a private investigator wrote back asking for any specific facts that Kelly might know about the murders. Kelly's answers were extremely detailed, and he claimed to have heard sounds and probably even witnessed the crime. But as he was known to have a mental illness, authorities weren't sure if this was the truth or just a product of the Reverend's mind. Two years after the crime in 1914, Kelly was arrested because he was sexually harassing a woman who had applied for a job as his secretary and was sent to St. Elizabeth Hospital, the National Mental Health Hospital in Washington, D.C. This made investigators believe once again that the Reverend could have been the culprit of the Moore family's death. In 1917, Kelly was arrested for the Villisca murders, having confessed his guilt to the authorities, but... He retracted, and after two different trials, he was acquitted. Some people say that he confessed because he was tortured, yet this man remains as a mystery after he moved away. Things get more complicated from here. There was a particularly controversial suspect, Frank Fernando Jones, who was an Iowa State Senator. Josiah Moore used to work for him at the Jones store for several years until he opened up his own implement company in 1908. Jones was extremely upset that Moore had left his employ and managed to take the very lucrative John Deere franchise with him, which could be a motive for the crime. There was also a rumor that said that Josiah Moore had an affair with Jones's daughter-in-law, Donna, which made things get even more tense between the two men. He became the subject of a grand jury investigation and a prolonged campaign to prove his guilt, which destroyed his political career. Yet... Nobody was able to prove that Jones was the culprit, which leads to the following theory. They said that Frank Jones paid someone to commit the murders. Someone called William Mansfield, who lived in Blue Island, Illinois. Mansfield was the prime suspect of the Burns Detective Agency of Kansas City and Detective James Newton Wilkerson, and their investigation said that he was the culprit. 
According to Wilkerson, Mansfield was a cocaine fiend and serial killer, and he believed that this man was also responsible of killing his wife, infant child, father-in-law, and mother-in-law with an axe two years after the Velisca murders. Wilkerson also accused Mansfield of the axe murders committed in Paola, Kansas, four days before the Velisca murders and the murders of Jeannie Peterson and Jeannie Miller in Aurora, Colorado. This is because all the homicides were committed in the exact same way. All victims had been bludgeoned to death, the mirrors of the houses were covered, a burning lamp with the chimney off was left at the foot of the bed, and a basin in which the murderer washed was found in the kitchen. There were no fingerprints in each case, which indicated that the culprit or culprits were experienced or particularly careful. Wilkerson believed this was strong evidence that the man was Mansfield because he knew his fingerprints were in the system already. But Mansfield had an alibi thanks to his payrolls, which made him be released. Wilkerson believed that this was not the case and that Frank Jones had pressured the jury to declare the man innocent and then arrest and trial Reverend Kelly. The possibility of the crime being committed by a serial killer was big, suggested by Wilkerson's case against Mansfield. M. W. McClary, a federal officer assigned to the Velisca case, actually announced in May of 1913 that he had solved the crime. His theory was that Lee Moore, not related to the victims, was a serial killer and the culprit of Velisca murders and 22 other homicides. This man was actually convicted of the murders of his mother and grandmother, which took place several months after Velisca's crime. The weapon was an axe, just like the past murders, as all the cases had striking similarities. It led to the suspicion that some or all of the crimes were committed by him. During the Velisca investigation, the other axe murders also came to light. Just nine months before his crime, H.C. Wayne, his wife and child, and Mrs. A.J. Burham and her two children were bludgeoned with an axe in Colorado Springs, Colorado. A month later, a family was killed in Mammoth, Illinois, and just a week later, five members of a family in Ellsworth, Kansas, were murdered as they slept. Just a week before the killing of the Moors and Stillingers in Villisca, a man and his wife were killed in Paola, Kansas. The similarities of the murders were too many to be mere coincidences, but and McClory believed that Henry Moore was the culprit of all those crimes. But his announcement went largely ignored, and it's unknown if Henry Moore was convicted for this. Few of Velisca's residents believed that this man was the murderer of the Moors, but according to the father of the Stillinger sisters, the man resembled someone he had hired in the past. It's not clear what happened afterwards, but most likely Henry Moore was not the man that Stillinger thought he was. The Moore family was buried at the Velisca Cemetery, and the Stillinger sisters were buried together in the same graveyard. Their murderer or murderers are most likely dead, so they probably won't have justice anytime soon. Nowadays, the house where the crimes happened is in the National Register of Historic Places. There are tours around the house which talk about the Villisca Axe murders and the controversy the town found itself in after the investigation of Frank Jones. It is said that the house is haunted and multiple psychics were able to contact ghosts inside, confirmed by many paranormal investigators. Day and night tours are available. Tell me, fellow humans, would you take the tour in this residence knowing what happened in it? Well, the old clock on the wall says it's time for this episode to come to an end. As usual, fellow humans, I want to thank you for spending your time with me as we explore the Velisca Axe Murders. 
I drop episodes each week on Monday mornings, more or less faithfully, and you can catch them on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast fix. You can also visit me at www.murderpod.net, where you can listen to episodes or leave me a comment in the comment section. That's M-U-R-D-E-R-P-O-D.net. I'll leave a link in the description. Until next time, please be kind to yourselves and be good to each other. Take care.